named Voltaire. Whether or not he actually said it, it's quite a statement, isn't it? It's saying that the Christian Sabbath, what we usually call, and maybe more preferably sometimes call, the Lord's Day, is the lifeblood of Christianity. You get rid of that day, you get rid of the Christian Sabbath of the Lord's Day, and you will get rid of Christianity, real Christianity. That's what it's saying. It's claiming that the Lord's Day is vitally important for true Christianity. But is that really true? After all, it wasn't a Christian who said that. Is the Lord's Day and how we treat that day really that important? Seems like many people today don't really think it is. Not just in the world. But even in the church, broadly speaking, many people do not see the Christian Sabbath day as all that important. And they can even point to some New Testament texts that seem to support their view. And it's very easy even for us, even if we wouldn't yet say it or consciously think it, it's very easy for us to, to live as if the Lord's Day or what we do on that day is not that important. It's very easy for us to think of it as our day. A day that we can do what we want, what we feel like. That might include going to church. Or it might not. But even when it does include that, it is very, even in church, it can be very easy for our focus to be on ourselves or perhaps on, on those around us in a negative way rather than on the Lord. And yet when we are Christians, congregation. We should want that to be different. Because as Christians, you see, we want to live for God. You see, when we are true Christians, we've been washed in the blood of God's dear Son, Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed from sin and death. We've been reconciled to God by Christ's death in our place. The death that a few hours ago we proclaimed at his table. But not only that, when we are true Christians, we've been given the Holy Spirit who, who is at work in our hearts to, to write in our hearts the law of God and to transform us into the image of Christ. And part of that is keeping, the image of Christ really is keeping the law of God because that's what he did. And one of those commandments, those ten commandments, namely the fourth one, is about God's Sabbath day, or God's rest day. Exodus 20 verse 10 refers to it as the Sabbath of, or belonging to, the Lord thy God. And the word Sabbath refers to ceasing, or completing, or resting from something. 
And so the fourth commandment is about God's rest day, and it requires His people's devotion of that day, of God's rest day to Him. It really requires, of course, all people, but we're talking here in reference to living our lives as thankful, in thankful obedience to God as Christians. And we see that in both versions of this commandment, which you can find in our two text passages for this afternoon, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, and Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 through 15. In Exodus 20, verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And in Deuteronomy 5, it says, Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it. To keep it holy, to sanctify it. In the Hebrew, it's the same, same words. But what does that mean? It means to devote it to God. That's what the fourth commandment requires. That's part of what our loving God, you see, and living for Him as Christians, it, it's a look like. And so our theme this afternoon with God's help is, is simply this. The fourth commandment requires our devotion of God's rest day to Him. And we'll consider two things about this devotion. And if you're I've looked in the bulletin, you say, well, there's four things. That's right. That was when I sent the liturgy in. Uh, but it's really two things. I will refer to the last two things, the last two points in my conclusion very briefly. But the first, the, the two things we want to consider especially mainly are its New Testament continuance and its gospel-oriented expression. So the fourth commandment requires our devotion of God's rest day to Him. And the first thing we need to consider is its New Testament continuance. And this is important because on the one hand, many people say it's no longer relevant. Yes, Exodus 20 verse 8 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But that was for God's people in the Old Testament. Certainly they were required to devote God's rest day to Him. No one, no one can deny that. But, these people say, God's people in the New Testament aren't required to keep this commandment. Because according to them, the New Testament never mentions it. Not only that, several passages that we'll mention later, uh, and I'll just give you the chapters now so that you have them in your minds, Romans 14, Galatians 4, and Colossians 2, they, they indicate that Sabbath keeping is no longer required. And so these people say to insist that it is, that's legalism. So what do we do? Are we required to continue devoting God's rest day to Him? What does the New Testament actually say about that? That's an important question if we care about loving and obeying God. And so there are, there are two things the New Testament makes clear. In the first place, the New Testament confirms the continuance of this co commandment. We are to devote God's Sabbath, His rest day to Him, not just in the Old, but also in the New Testament. Also after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's good to remember here in this context what Christ himself teaches us in Matthew 5. We've looked at it a few times during our, our series on the commandments now. But he tells us in Matthew 5 in his Sermon on the Mount that he came what? Not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he, he goes on to say that the law continues to apply, and it will continue to apply, also for Christians. 
And when he said that, he never made any exceptions, did he? He never said, well, except for the fourth commandment. No, in fact, he explicitly upheld the fourth commandment. Where do we see that? Look, you remember the passage we read earlier, Mark 2, verses 23 to 28. What happened? Jesus and his disciples, they were, they were walking through a cornfield on the, on the Sabbath day, and, and, and his disciples were told they began to pluck some ears of corn and, and to eat them because they were hungry. And the Pharisees, they, they saw that and they accused them to Jesus of breaking this commandment, the fourth commandment. How did Jesus respond? Well, he started by reminding them of how David, when he was hungry and in need, ate some, ate some of the showbread, which the law didn't allow him to do. And what was his point with that? His point was that in cases of real need, even the Old Testament ceremonial law about the showbread could be set aside. How much more than the Pharisees' man-made restriction on hungry people plucking corn and eating it on the Sabbath? Because that's what it was. That law is not in the Old Testament. It was a man-made law. That's what Jesus is speaking against in Mark 2. He's not speaking against keeping the Sabbath day holy. He's speaking against the burdensome laws that the Pharisees had added to the commandment. He's not rejecting the Sabbath. He's restoring the Sabbath. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for, or literally because of, on account of man. And not man for, or because of the Sabbath. And those words do not do away with the Sabbath day. They actually confirm its New Testament continuance. Because if the weekly Sabbath was made for man, as Jesus said, that means that as long as there are people on this earth, there will be God's Sabbath day, a weekly day of rest belonging to God. It's not going to just disappear and fall off. And that means we should keep it holy. We should devote it to him because that's what he told us to do with it. But, but what about those passages then that do seem to do away with the Sabbath? What about Romans 14 verse 5 where Paul says, One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. What about Galatians 4, verses 10 and 11, where Paul says, You observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. And perhaps most significantly of all, what about Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new man, new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Doesn't that make it pretty clear that we do not need to keep the Sabbath day holy anymore? It might seem so, but it actually doesn't. What Paul is saying in these passages, all of these passages, is that Christians do not need to and even should not Keep the Jewish days, including the seventh-day Sabbaths. 
That's clear from his speaking of it in Colossians 2, along with holy days and new moons. Those are Jewish feasts. And so some people were apparently insisting that Christians needed to keep those days. And that's the issue that Paul, Paul is addressing. He's addre addressing the issue of Jewish holy days. But that doesn't mean there's no Christian day of rest corresponding to the Jewish Sabbath. Even if, even if you do not call it an actual, by the, by the Sabbath day as he seemed to avoid doing because of the confusion that would come about. But think about it for a minute. Part of the Jewish Holy Days includes the Passover, right? Do we have to keep the Passover today? No. Christ is our Passover. Christ has done away. He, he, is, he has done away with it. He has come. But does that mean there's nothing in the New Testament that corresponds to the Old Testament Passover? No. There is. There's the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. The point is, these passages, they do not destroy the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. We are to continue to devote God's day of rest to Him. So the New Testament confirms this continuance, but it also clearly adapts or modifies it. It changes the Sabbath day from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. In other words, from Saturday to Sunday. And we see that in passages like Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, as well as John 20. The passages we just discussed a few minutes ago, they make clear that the Jewish Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, is done away with. Okay? We cannot disagree with that. But on top of that, then you have these other passages in the New Testament that speak of the church devoting the first day of the week to God. Acts 20 tells us about Paul and his helpers coming to Troas and staying there for seven days. And in verse 7, it says there, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, which may well be referring to the Lord's Supper, Paul preached unto them. Now what does that suggest? It suggests that the disciples devoted the first day of the week to God. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, Paul's giving instructions to the Corinthians about collections for their fellow Christians in Jerusalem. And he says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings or collections when I come. His main point here is that he doesn't want the Corinthians to wait till he comes to have a collection, but to be ready. But how are they to be ready? By having collections on the first day day of the week. What does that suggest? It suggests that they devoted the first day of the week to God. But maybe you're thinking at this point, yeah, but there's no verse in the New Testament that actually says the Sabbath day in the fourth commandment has been changed to the first day. To Sunday. And you're right. But why does there have to be a verse? It says it so explicitly. What right do we have to demand of God that he give us one specific verse that makes it absolutely, undeniably clear that we're not only to keep the Sabbath day holy still, but it's changed to Sunday. There's no verse in the Bible that says God is a triune God. 
But that doesn't mean it doesn't teach us that. It does. We learn it from comparing Scripture with Scripture. And so just because there's no particular verse that says the Sabbath has been changed to the first day of the week doesn't mean the Bible doesn't teach that. It does. We can learn it, we can conclude it from the pattern that we see in Scripture. And that pattern begins already in John chapter 20 in connection with the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which happened on what day of the week? The first day of the week. John 20 verse 19 tells us that very same day Christ's disciples were assembled. Yes, they were not assembled for worship. They were assembled for fear of the Jews. But what happened? Christ came and stood in the midst. And then verse 26 tells us that he did that again eight days later. In other words, that following Sunday, because the Jewish way of counting included both the first and the last days. Now what does that suggest? It suggests there's something special about the first day of the week. And there is. It's the Lord's day. That's how John himself speaks of it later in Revelation 1, verse 10. So we know a weekly Sabbath continues in the New Testament because of what Christ said in Mark 2 and because of what he said in Matthew 5. The Sabbath, the day of rest belonging to God, has not been destroyed, but it has been changed from the seventh day to the first day of the week. It's been changed by Christ, who called himself what? The Lord of the Sabbath. Maybe you're thinking, okay, why spend all this time on this? Why, why does it matter? matters because of what it means for us. It means that how we spend our Sundays matters. One of the ways we show that we are Christians is by remembering and keeping, or even you could say guarding, the first day of each week to keep it holy. In other words, to keep it intentionally devoted to Him. Because that, that first day of the week is God's New Testament Sabbath. But what does that look like? Perhaps you, you hear this and you get pictures in your mind of all oh, just all kinds of rules. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You can't do that. What is our devotion of God's rest day to Him supposed to look like? And that brings us to our second point. It's gospel-oriented expression. And look here again at what it says in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day, and for us now the first day, is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. How do these verses describe the expression of our devotion of God's day of rest to Him? They describe it in terms of two wonderful, glorious gospel blessings. Rest and worship. Why do I call those gospel blessings? Because those were the two things in the context of Israel. Those were the two things that the Israelites didn't have as slaves in Egypt. 
Their devotion of the Sabbath to God was not to be legalistic. It was to be gospel-oriented. And so it is also for us. Devoting God's day of rest to Him means, first of all, resting. Resting from our regular daily work. The fourth commandment is very emphatic, isn't it? It calls us to complete all our work in the other six days of the week. And on the Sabbath day, we are not to do any work. Now, of course, there, there is some work that is allowed. Jesus makes that clear in passages like Mark 2 and 3. Plucking ears of corn to, to eat because you're hungry is a work that it's, that's allowed. Helping others who are suffering or in need is a work that's allowed and even encouraged. Jesus himself did that in Mark 3 when he healed that man with the withered arm, or the withered hand on the Sabbath. Leading or serving in different ways in worship is allowed. We know that because in Matthew's account of, of, of Christ's confrontation with the Pharisees over the plucking the ears of the corn on the Sabbath, Matthew, in Matthew 12, he tells us that Christ not only talked about how David, he not only showed how David ate the showbread when he was hungry and, and that was allowed, but, but also how the priest they would work in the temple on the Sabbath and, and they were blameless. And so the commandment's not forbidding all work. You do have to take care of your animals, your cows or whatever animals you have. People in hospitals need to be taken care of. The, 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 there needs to be uh, police to, to, to keep people safe and, and those kind of things. And God, God's word needs to be proclaimed. The commandment's not forbidding those kinds of works, what we sometimes call works of necessity and mercy and piety. It's calling us to rest from our, any of our ordinary daily work. And that includes the rest, or resting from the work we do not, or resting from the work not only outside the home that we do, but also the work that we do inside the home. And it calls us to the commandment to, to, to do all that we can to enable others to rest from their work too. And the commandment emphasizes that too, doesn't it? It includes children, servants, animals, even strangers or non-Israelites living in Israel. Now, of course, in our context, we don't usually use animals for work, but, but the principle is clear. We're to do all we can to enable others to rest from their regular daily work on the Lord's Day. That includes our children, that includes our employees, and even beyond. You can think of, of people who, who work at restaurants, or in stores, or on airlines. The point is, resting from our regular daily work is part of how we express our devotion of God's day of rest to Him. Now here's, here's what I really want to emphasize. What is that resting a sign of? Is it a sign of the judgment of God? Or is it a sign of the glorious grace of God? It's a sign of His grace. It's a sign of His love. It's a sign of His care. And it helps to think about this from, from an Israelite point of view. The Israelites have been slaves for years. The Egyptians had oppressed them and had made them serve with rigor. But then God had, had brought them out. He had delivered them. He had saved them. How good he had been. But now not only that, he tells them now to rest from their work one day a week on his Sabbath day, his day of rest. 
What a, what, what a confirming sign of his grace or not. What a confirming sign of his love, of his kindness, of his care. You think of it this way. Imagine your boss or, or maybe children, your parents, give you a big job to do. Maybe it's, maybe it's something like cleaning the shop or in, maybe in some families it's cleaning the Lego room. Or, or, or maybe it's mowing the lawn on a, on a hot day. Whatever it is, it's a big job. Now, if they tell you to come inside for a rest and maybe a snack and some juice, what does that tell you about your boss? What does it tell you about your parents? That they're a killjoy? That they hate you? No. It's a sign that they love you. It's a sign that they care for you. And it's the same here. It's the same here. When, when the Lord has saved you and brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light and saved you from sin, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. How good, how good we confess, don't we? How good God has been. But he doesn't just do that. He gives us as his people. He gives us work to do. But on the Sabbath day, he tells us, as it were, to come inside for a rest and to be refreshed. Is that a sign that he hates us? Is that a sign that he's a killjoy? It's a sign that he loves us, isn't it? It's a sign of his grace, of his kindness, of his care. It confirms what we sing of sometimes, what we sing sometimes in Psalter 281, mindful of our human frailty, is the God in whom we trust. He whose years are everlasting, he remembers we are dust. Of course, we don't always see it that way, do we? There can be deadlines for school, deadlines for work. There can be financial pressures. There can be a potential promotion or job opportunity and, and suddenly this resting from our work can seem more like a curse than a blessing, more like an impossible burden. But is it really? Is the problem really resting? Isn't it more our heart, our unbelief, our lust for the things of the world? Isn't it more the problem that the world is still too much in our heart? That's why the Israelites, when you read their history through the Old Testament, that's why they had such a hard time with this commandment. The world was too much in their heart. That can be the case for us, too. Resting from our work on the Sabbath day congregation is not the problem. It's the blessing, a gospel blessing. It's a sign of his gospel grace toward hell-deserving sinners who don't deserve any rest at all. But resting from our work is not the only way we're to express our devotion of God's rest day to him. We're also to worship him. The commandment doesn't say that explicitly, but it implies it. For one thing, just the, the words, keep the Sabbath day holy. What does that mean? As I said, it means devoting it to God. That's what it means to keep something holy. And that means not, not keeping it to ourselves, not devoting it to ourselves, not devoting it to our desires or our pleasures or our hobbies, but to God. And if we're devoting it to God, that implies in worshiping Him. In Exodus 20, verse 9, 
it, it, it confirms that when it refers to the Sabbath as the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. You could also translate it as the Sabbath to the Lord thy God. The point is, the Sabbath day is not, first of all, a day belonging to us. It's a gift and a blessing to us, yes, absolutely, but it belongs, first of all, to God, not to us. And that, that means it's not devoted to us. It's not a day for doing our own thing. It's a day to be devoted, to be dedicated to God. In other texts, such as Leviticus 23, verse 3, they tell us that that also involves God's people gathering together, assembling together to worship Him. The Lord's day is meant for the special worship of God. It's kind of like birthdays. Not a perfect analogy, but when you children have a birthday, whose day is it? Well, it's, it's kind of like your day, isn't it? Sure. Your family sings happy birthday to you. And maybe they give you gifts. And maybe your mom or dad lets you choose what to have for supper. It's your day, a day dedicated especially to you. It's not your brother's day. It's not your sister's day. It's not your friend's day. It's your day. Yes, it's a blessing to them too. They get to enjoy the cake. They maybe get to come to the party. But imagine they enjoyed all those things and they never once spoke to you. They never once sang or even said happy birthday to you. And imagine instead that they even acted as if it was their birthday, as if all the presents that you had received belonged to them. That would be wrong, wouldn't it? That's not right. Because it's not their day, it's your day. The same way with Sunday, only in a much greater way. It's not our day. It's the Lord's day. It's meant for the special worship, the special honor of Him, not us. And that means especially gathering together as a congregation for worship when it's possible. We see that, for example, in Leviticus 23, verse 3. There the Lord tells Moses to say to Israel, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, an holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Now what's a holy convocation? It's simply a gathering of people for the, for the special worship of God. But notice how that verse speaks of, of that, 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 that special gathering for worshiping God, right hand in hand with, with resting from our work. You see, it's both. And, and, and the, the basis for both our rest and our worship is what? Is that the Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Lord. And we see that special gathering for worship on the Sabbath happening throughout the Bible, right on into the New Testament where you see the synagogues and we see Jesus not forsaking the synagogues but going to the synagogues as his custom was. And the Christians there later too, as, as we have seen, they met together, they gathered together on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, for the special worship of God. The point is, this is how we express our devotion to God, of God's rest day to Him, not just by, by resting from our work, but also by worshiping the Lord, also as a congregation. 
And that includes in the words of the Catechism, diligently frequenting or attending the Church of God to hear His Word, to use the sacraments, publicly to call upon the Lord and contribute to the relief of the poor as becomes a Christian. But again, what I, want to, what I, what I, what I hope you see with me is, is what a wonderful gospel blessing this is. Worship's not a drag. Never. Israel's Sabbath worship of God, just like their Sabbath rest, was a sign of the grace of God. It was a sign of the Lord's commitment to be their God and Savior. He didn't just bring them out of Egypt and say, there you go, now you're on your own. Hope it works out. No, he brought them out of Egypt and he said to them as it were, here I am. I am your God. I am your Savior. And he gave his Sabbath day, his commandment to worship him every Sabbath day to confirm that. The same is true for us as Christians. God's command to worship Him on the Lord's day is a sign of His commitment to be our God, to be our Savior. Our Sabbath worship is gospel-oriented. It's gospel-confirming and it's gospel-focused. When you look at Deuteronomy 5, you look at the version of this commandment there, it highlights that. Deuteronomy 5 verse 15 tells us that the purpose of Israel's Sabbath worship it was that they would remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through an outstretched arm or, or through a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. In other words, the purpose for Israel was to remember God's salvation from Egypt. And for us as Christians, what's the purpose of our worship on the Sabbath day? It's to remember God's salvation from our sins, from our sin and from Satan and death. And that means that our worship is to revolve around the gospel. And that's why the preaching of the gospel is such a big part of our worship. And that's why then the Catechism's explanation of what God requires in the fourth commandment begins with saying that he requires that the ministry of the gospel and the schools or the seminaries where people are trained to preach the gospel be maintained. Because our worship is to be gospel-focused, gospel-centered. Our worship of God on His day, congregation, is meant to be both a sign and a reminder of His grace in the gospel. And if you know yourself at all, if you know yourself at all, you know that that is an inestimable blessing. Because we're so prone to forget the gospel, aren't we? We're so prone to live as if our salvation depends on us. But God, He graciously calls us to devote His rest day to Him by worshiping Him, by remembering the great things that He has done, the salvation that He has accomplished, and He continues to apply by His grace. So that, so that as the Catechism goes on to say, all the days of my life I cease from my evil works and yield myself to the Lord to work by His Holy Spirit in me, and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. So that, in other words, the Christian religion in our hearts might not be destroyed. How can expressing our devotion of God's resting to Him by resting and worshiping the Lord in this way be legalistic or burdensome? 
Shouldn't it rather be a joy and a delight? Is that your attitude toward worshiping the Lord on Sundays? Also as a congregation gathering together. If it's not, then something's wrong. Either our worship and preaching is not focused on the gospel, on the person and work of Jesus Christ, or your heart isn't. In that case, it should grieve us, and it should bring us to Christ in repentance and faith, seeking his forgiveness and renewal, and he'll gladly give it, because that's why he died. I trust, I hope, and I pray, congregation, that there is no one here, that there is no one here who wants to destroy the Christian religion in your heart or in your families. And let's, let's seek to devote God's rest day to Him each week. After all, it's really His rightful due, isn't it? He set it apart already as holy in the very beginning. As it says in Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. We owe him his day. Not only because he set it apart as holy already in the beginning, but also because of his redemption, as Deuteronomy 5 reminds us. Remember what that cost him. But that redemption cost our Lord cost him his life. He died to save us. Does he not deserve our devotion of his rest day to him? Let's seek to keep this day holy. And when we do, we can expect, we can expect a reward because God has promised a gracious reward. And I want to close with that now, quoting from Isaiah 58. Verses 13 and 14. Just listen to what the Lord says there. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. And I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, when we devote God's rest day to him by resting from our labors and worshiping him, and he will personally and most certainly Comfort, honor, and bless us abundantly. Isn't that what you want? Then let's devote his rest day, the first day of the week, to him. Amen. Let us give thanks. Lord, we do give thanks for this, this commandment. And we 
confess our sins against this commandment with sorrow, with shame. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to go forward from here, seeing the preciousness of this day that you give us every week. And that you would help us to obey it, to rest, and to worship you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with the singing Psalter 378. Psalter 378, all the verses.